Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Tommy Orange, who's the author of a novel, There, There, graduate with an MFA from the Institute of American Indian Arts, and you teach writing at the same place, at the Institute of American Indian Arts. This novel is the first novel. Had you written short stories before this? Yeah, but nothing had been published. It's not exactly true. I published one short story in a small print-only native journal called Yellow Medicine Review, but other than that, uh, nothing. I didn't write at all when I was young. I I wasn't a reader. I, pl- I was really into roller hockey. I played at this um, rink that's sort of near the Coliseum off Hagenberger called Dry Ice. For many years, I was playing tournament level, sort of on a national level. Very serious into that. Didn't do well in school. Wasn't particularly encouraged to do anything that involved my mind. And then got into music and went to sound engineering school in, at Expression in, in Emeryville. After Graduating from that, I got a job at a used bookstore, and I fell in love with fiction completely, and that was about 2005. It was called Grey Wolf Books. It doesn't exist anymore. It was on international, right, as you get into San Leandro. You began reading at that point. Did you just try your hand at writing? How did that work? It was shortly after falling in love with fiction and seeing what novels could do that I realized I wanted to do it myself, or try. You know, I felt very far behind at that point. This was probably 2005 also. And so I uh, kind of committed myself to putting in the work to try to catch up to everyone who did know their whole lives that they wanted to be a writer. Well, what were you reading? The people that convinced me at first were like Borges and Kafka. And I'd been reading like religious texts and philosophy, just searching for meaning um, in my younger 20s. The two novels that first convinced me to or inspired me to want to write novels were uh, Confederacy of Dunces and Sylvia Plath's Bell Jar, which really opened me up to to what a novel could do, and I just loved how both funny and sad something could be. What about political novels? Not particularly. In many ways, There There is a very political book. I think being a Native person, you're automatically political just because of how misrepresented we've been and also, you know, historically things have not gone well, so you're sort of positioned in resistance to this government, and that makes you automatically political. When you were growing up, how aware were you of your heritage? Because in There, There, the characters range from being not aware to being hyper-aware and being completely displaced in both cases. Mm -hmm. Well, it was as far back as I can remember, it was a very clear thing to me. My dad was always really clear with us where we came from and so I, I didn't necessarily go through some of the struggles that the characters go through, but I worked in the community for many years, and, and I saw the range of uh, proximity that people have to to being Native and uh, what it means. And I wanted to represent uh, an experience of not necessarily having a connection or having a, a very close connection and just kind of show the difference, the contrast, by having all these characters live in the same world. 
They're all in Oakland, and this is urbanized Indians, which we know very little about, but that's basically what are you going to do if you're not on the reservation, right? Yeah. I mean, having a, a connection to a land base and a language and being from one area, definitely it's easier to feel grounded in your identity. But Native people have been living in Oakland uh, for 60 years, so um, it's not exactly a new thing. As you were growing up, were you aware of events like Trail of Tears? Sure. More so uh, the Sand Creek Massacre. This was a story we heard more than once. You know, my dad wasn't telling it because he's morbid, but because he'd heard it. And maybe in the spirit of, like, we can't forget that this happened. It was devastating to our tribe specifically. It was in uh, Colorado. And he grew up hearing his grandparents tell the story. So I was very aware of that particular incident from a very early age. No, he was in originally in Oklahoma and took the family out west. Is that correct? He's originally from Oklahoma. Yeah, he met my mom in uh, northern New Mexico at a peyote commune in the seventies, and they moved to Oklahoma for a while, and then they moved to out here. And he went to Cal Berkeley, and he became an engineer, and he worked at the Lawrence Berkeley Labs for I think seventeen years. So where did you grow up exactly? In Fruitvale, or <laughs> it's right above Diamond Park. We could actually see the Diamond Creek from our backyard. And you went to school in Oakland. Were people aware you were you were Native American? How aware were people around you at the time? I mostly have been misidentified. You know, white people tend to be aware that I'm not white, and then there aren't very many other Native people around to identify with. So I've been called racial slurs you know, the wrong ones at various different times. But when people ask, like, what are you, that that question, you know, I tell them. And so I don't know that anybody's ever immediately been like, you're a Native person. But that's part of the thing is, like, we have a range of ways that we look. And if you know Native people, you know what to look for. But if other people are looking for the Native American in the room, they're going to look for a headdress or, like, high cheekbones or something you know, that's part of the problem of misrepresentation and how we've been represented in films and in pop culture. Well, that's part of the whole Indian shtick <laughs> that we see, whether it be the whooping war Indian or the noble savage, which bears no relationship to what's really going on. Mm -hmm. um, when you began working as a writer, was that immediately what drew you to dealing with it and, and there, there? No, I, I was writing really weird stuff and experimental stuff at first. Um, I didn't exactly know what I was going to write about. Once I decided to include my own life details into my writing, it automatically included that, this this mixed heritage and this, this idea of being Native and from Oakland automatically got filtered through me, the characters did. And so as soon as I made the decision to have anything that included my life details, which eventually you, you come to as a writer, um, unless you're writing um, fantasy or a certain genre, or I think you end up including your life details. Let's go back to you're working at the bookstore, you're reading, you're trying to experiment. How do you wind up getting an MFA? How does that come about? 2005 to 2012, that was just me working on my own sort of in a vacuum not really submitting very much, not really feeling like I could get in anywhere. I tried to win the short story contest at Zoe Trope for about seven years. Eventually got an honorable mention in 2013, which felt like a win. So just uh, writing as much as I could, like I said, I was playing catch up because I came to it sort of late 
and writing and reading as much as I could. I lived in New Mexico for a year. At one point, lived in Oregon for six months, um, just dedicating myself to to writing and reading uh, as much as I could. So, you know, reading craft books and just trying to figure out how to write better over time. So the MFA, I found out about sort of by chance. Um, I was in a workshop actually here in Berkeley at an organization that's actually used to be nearby here called Story Center, they do digital storytelling. And uh, one of the members overheard me tell my coworker that I got into the McDowell Colony, which is a really prestigious um, artist residency. And I didn't know then that it was prestigious. I just applied because I'd seen it on another Native artist's resume. So she got really excited that I got in, and she was like, are you in an MFA? And I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't really want to do an MFA, and I have a family, and I have to work, and I can't like just remove myself. She knew about low residencies, and she started Googling, and she found uh, the Institute of American Indian Arts. And so when I saw the faculty that worked there and the fact that there was such a program was really exciting to me. So uh, I applied and got in in 2014. How did there there emerge? I mean, I understand you're a fan of Tarantino and there are sort of elements of that. Reminded me a little more of Altman's Nashville in the way the characters all come together. I think Colin McCann's Let the Great World Spin was structurally the first novel that I I really liked the way he reveals the connections. His is sort of a reverse of mine because the main event happens in his prologue and mine's all sort of drawn toward the end. I thought of the idea, the sort of complete idea, at the end of 2010 to have a bunch of different voices and lives converge at a uh, shooting at the Oakland Coliseum at a powwow. That basic seed of an idea I thought of and then started writing into it about the beginning of 2012. And at that point, you began looking at how you're going to do it and how the characters' voices would be different from each other. Yeah, I was waking up early. I was working full time at that time, waking up super early and writing. And then after my son went to sleep at night, writing then, just finding whenever I could. And I was sort of auditioning voices to see who felt real and true and who I could sustain over time. And so that was, uh, you know, that that was a a moment when some of the voices that that are in there now first emerged in that first year. What was the first voice to emerge? I don't know if I know that. I know Dean was early on, and Tony, and Opal, and Orville. Those four, for sure, were in that first year, I'm pretty sure. So you just began experimenting with who they were, writing a little bit to see what their past might be? Yeah, and you know, what what world do they exist in and what is their relationship to it and what are the little details that make them real and considering their past and how does that affect their voice and then eventually experimenting with POV, point of view. I transposed almost every character into different point of views to try to get them to feel as distinct as possible because I know it can be annoying to keep track of a lot of characters in a novel and I I tried to make them distinct so that it, it wouldn't be as difficult. When you talk about creating little details to make them seem real, what can you be specific? What exactly you're talking about? Well, let's say Opal, for example, she talks about the way she's superstitious and uh, has a thing with spoons. I have had that thing historically. I I tend to include a lot of idiosyncrasies from my own life because I don't know what else I'm going to do with them. Uh, and these little things can help to enrich characters, and and I know them in an intimate way, so I can write about them more easily than something else. Must be weird if your family is reading this and they can just point and go, oh, I know that. I know that little tick. Yeah. 
I think the people that know me best know exactly what is from my life in all the characters. Well, there's one character who's trying to be a writer, and I would think that that particular character must have must have been weird to be him and not him at the same time. Yeah, you know, I think we can all write from a space of feeling sucked into the internet and like that you've wasted a ton of time. I've at times been, you know, a lot heavier and f- more uncomfortable with my body, like up to 40 pounds heavier than I am now. So the Edwin Black character, there were ways that I could write about it that I've experienced it. And yeah, him wanting to be a writer for sure has been pulled from different and wanted to be taken seriously by his mom. That wasn't necessarily from my life, but... Um, were there times when you were kind of going, I better back off because it's getting a little too close? What I like about fiction is that I'm the one who knows how close and the reader doesn't necessarily. I don't mind sharing personal details from my life. So I like that you can hide in fiction and you don't, you're don't. you not revealing where you're hiding. You don't know what's made up out of thin air and what's taken from directly from real life. When you've got the characters, then two things are going on. First... There's a political subtext, which is how they live, and you have to make sure that it remains subtext to some degree. And at the same time, you have to take these characters to a specific place, in this case, the Oakland Coliseum. How do you manage to do that? Did you go from the back to the front or the front to the back? Well, I think coming up with the idea to have everyone end up at one destination in some ways made it easier to figure out uh, their arcs, their narrative arcs, and and also even their what drives them, what's going to get them physically to that powwow. You know, it was a messy endeavor, and uh, there was a lot of points during the middle where I wasn't sure I'd make it through. I, I don't know that I can say exactly how, but having that sort of plot device in place to have them get to a place simplified. Sometimes, you know, if you just make up a character, you're not sure what their plot is. It's more difficult to figure out what drives them and where they're going in the story. So I think I I benefited from from coming up with the concept at the end first. There, there mostly takes place in the present, but there are a couple of sequences that take place back in the 70s with the takeover of Alcatraz. How aware were you of the Alcatraz situation as you were growing up? Well, there's a picture of me when I was nine or 10, standing right in front of the the spray-painted Indian land message on Alcatraz. So we were aware of it to some extent. I think I became more interested in it as I was approaching the writing of this novel and working in the community and meeting people who were actually there. We, we took a group, a youth suicide prevention grant, we took a group of youth over there and had elders talk about their experience. So I think that experience definitely made me wonder, hearing their stories, but also wondering about some of these youth. You know, I know that they were on the island too, and what would that have been like? Came, I think, directly from that experience. They had just freshly repainted the graffiti to make it stand out more, and, and uh, they're trying to harder to feature that as part of the history and not just the Al Capone angle. The idea of having the flashback to Alcatraz? It just felt like it belonged in literature. It was such a dramatic thing to take over a prison island for almost two years. So I I didn't want to write it from a heroic sort of triumphant place. I could see the angles that you could write it from that weren't interesting to me. I thought, what was it like for kids to be on the island? What would that have been like? So it just felt like an important Bay Area native moment. And it also draws back how far the natives 
the history of Native people being in this area, you know, the Ohlone people and all sorts of California Indians. But I, I was referencing, trying to reference like people who came here in, on relocation and came here for civil rights. So it made sense to me because I draw back in the prologue to a certain period when people came to the city and that all felt connected, the Alcatraz moment. As you're working on it, did the title emerge there, there, the Gertrude Stein title? I was researching Oakland authors, just curious about who else had written about Oakland in a novel. And there's not that many. Jack London's, you know, talking about wolves and the sort of wild. And Gertrude Stein's talking about not talking about Oakland. But, and you know, Ishmael Reed wrote a really good book about Oakland. Uh, he's not originally from Oakland. But anyway, during that research period, um, I came across this quote, and uh, I knew immediately that it was going to Somewhere in there was the title. I didn't land on there there until the beginning of 2014. And how did you land on that? I was having a talk with a couple of artists at the McDowell Colony, and out of that conversation, it just kind of became clear that that's what it should be. I can't remember exactly how. The book opens with an essay about the history of Native Americans. What prompted you to start the book with that particular essay? And... How easy or hard was it to create a very, very powerful opening to your book? I never wrote it as an essay. That's not what I was intending. It's fine that people call it that, but I just like prologues that break form, break from form. I wrote this in the we. It's not always clear because I don't say we that much. I knew that I wanted to set the context for Native people living in the city, and urban Indians is sort of a self-identified term that I've heard used over the years. I think people are backing away a little bit from saying Indian at all, which is probably the right thing to do. Native is much more of the short term for it. In order to talk about urban Indians and to have all my characters have that as their context, I had to kind of go back to relocation, which sent me back to Indian termination policy, which are real U.S. government policies to actually get rid of people. And then, you know, the genocidal history and Sand Creek Massacre, I grew up hearing that story. It felt necessary at some point to reach back that far and to set the, the context before the story started. The history has just been told wrong or conveniently forgotten in so many instances. So it felt like something that I, I wanted to try to, to capture before the story even started. When the book came together, when you'd finally finished it, what then? You needed an agent, right? Yeah. I had a teacher at my school who'd offered to send my manuscript to her editor, and I worked really hard on polishing a strong 120 pages of that. That never came to be. And then I was at a writing conference called Writing by Writers in Tomales Bay. A writer there heard me read. I, I had a fellowship. And from hearing my reading, actually from the chapter about Alcatraz, she said, I, I want to send your manuscript to my agent. Nothing happened right away that she didn't send it. And then I think it was like the day after Trump got in, she took it as a call to action. Like you said, it's it's a political novel in many ways because it sort of has to be. And my agent, my now agent, was up with anxiety because of Trump being in, not being sure if she could leave the country um, and be able to get back in. She was reading it about 4 a.m. up with anxiety, and she said it gave her hope. And uh, she called me the next day and signed me. And she happened to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest, literary agent in the business. When you presented it, had you already winnowed down the characters? Yeah, especially the first 120 pages were pretty tight. 
when she asked for the second half, I, I was not ready, but I said, give me a month. And, and I, I really hustled to, to get the, the back half of it tightened up. What I ended up sending her at the end of 2016 was pretty much as it is, but three characters in it at that point didn't make it. So the three characters that were just completely pulled. Yeah. Who were they? There was a younger voice that also kind of harkened back to the civil rights days. And there was another character named Billy Two Rivers. And there was a character in a wheelchair. It's hard to talk about him now, actually. <laughs> Why? You know, I'm really happy with the way the novel ended up. I don't think I would have ultimately been happy before it got to the editor and, and she made suggestions and I was able to come up with the final form. How it ended up is tighter and the narratives connect in a more cohesive way. I think they may have been looser threads. By pulling them, the whole thing came together. I think easier. so, yeah. You ever intend to use them again? One chapter, there's some writing that I really like in it that I've at various times thought back to, but when I've gone back and looked at the pages, I'm not happy with them. So <laughs> so they go in the shelf yeah. for the time being. Yeah. The book came out to rapturous reviews. My publisher was really... They were really championing it from early on, from before it came out. So they sent me to like this big um, booksellers conference in Memphis, and I was one of four different authors that were featured at that conference. And this was a big moment. They did the, an autograph signing session with the advanced reader copies, and um, I was sitting next to a pretty established author. And uh, when I got to my table, there was a line of about more than 100 people. So the buzz was already pretty massive at that point. So signing autographs for the first time to over 100 people was a pretty wild experience. And there was a lot of moments like that along the way. I was certainly expecting a lot more uh, negative criticism or mixed. Uh, I, was, I was ready for it anyway. But it, like you said, it's been rapturous and really unbelievable reception. Politics in the book is under the surface, yet at the same time, it's there. I would never call myself a political person, but, you know, I, I guess there was, if, if there was a political intention, it was related to having people understand uh, how history and, and what happened in this country to a certain people, how it plays out over time and affects lives now. There's a certain sense of, like, get over it feeling that, you know, sometimes people actually say, outright say that. Trying to write, render characters in a way that you can see how these things play out over time and how they affect lives now. And wanting people to really understand how that can be a reality through fiction, if there was any political intention, is definitely to try to right some of the wrongs that have been told in history books and taught in classrooms for, for uh, decades. Is the relationship between how African Americans are trying to deal with their history and how Native Americans are? Definitely. I mean, I think the way you're, you have a relationship to the country you're a part of and, and whether there's discord or whether you benefited from or suffer because of the way this government has treated people over time affects you as a person. It's not just a political fact or historical fact. You have a relationship to, to that and I think it dictates how you live your life and uh, what your relationship to the system that you're a part of. You know, it's funny, um, last year I interviewed writer named Peter Carey, who wrote a book which deals with uh, the aboriginals of Australia and what happened to them, not merely genocide, but also uh, apartheid 
of the worst kind. And you realize that this story is being repeated over and over and over in lots of countries. The Native American experience in that sense isn't unique, but it certainly puts white European culture in a very, very bad light. Yeah, and colonization is alive and well today. When you look at who rules this country, it's a white male, old white male. I don't know if you've seen the, the picture of like all of the senators or all of the people. It's just like a sea of white faces with, with white hair. Tommy Orange, has there been any interest from Hollywood? Yeah, I've sold the, the TV rights, actually. I'm not sure. I've been saying it publicly, but I don't think I'm supposed to, so I'm stopping saying who it is. Who they cast. I mean, that's, that becomes a major issue, doesn't it? That was early on. My agent told me that they love the book and, and want you know, it for film or want it for TV, but an all-Native cast is difficult. But this was the beginning of 2017, and by the time I sold the TV rights, a lot has happened, and it's not as much of an issue anymore. You know, the people are doing things that have made steps forward for things like this to happen now. You know, we look at the election of Trump as this very negative thing, and of course it is, but it seems to have, on the other hand, opened doors toward activism and toward trying to get things right in a way that maybe wouldn't have happened. I agree with that. I've, I've been saying that from early on. I think there's a lot of unaddressed things that have come up to the surface because of him, and I think those things would not have come to people's attentions. I think there's a complacency and people, marginalized people are, have been aware of it and feel the sting of it. So th there's a sense of as long as he doesn't destroy the entire country or the world, he's definitely already done a lot of damage. He's a super corrosive, toxic person. But if we can come out of it, there's a lot of things that have come up that needed to be addressed. We see it in diversity. We see it in the Me Too movement. How specifically has it changed for Native Americans? Well, he's trying to do like land grabs and like, you know, he's doing all these things to national parks and the pipeline immediately went through in North Dakota. I think there's funding that's being cut. It's a lot of different ways, I think. And, you know, ultimately tweeting at Elizabeth Warren to call her Pocahontas and then taunting her with, I'll see you out there on the trail which he's referencing Trail of Tears. It's like his view of Native people is probably the lowest since, you know, the days of Andrew Jackson and some of these people who viewed Native people on a subhuman level. So there's a lot of different ways on a very real policy-wise ways that he's damaging Native lives and also just as a figure and how it plays out on the sort of political dramatic stage. He's openly very condescending to Native people. The Elizabeth Warren story, is it one we should put to rest? Uh, I mean, I think she's walked back from it quite a bit. I wish she wasn't running because I think there's a lot of votes that she's just going to take from what could be a better candidate. And uh, we obviously don't want another four years of Trump. But as far as putting it to rest, you know, I, I don't know where I stand on it because it was dumb for her to have walked it out in the first place. And I think she put it on a resume, which she's claiming she never used it to get into anywhere. But putting it on a resume in and of itself is fishy to have done that. So, you know, it's ex ex exploitative. And she didn't come from that experience or have, I don't think she had any, any right to, to claim it. 
it's mildly interesting to talk about, but I'm happy to stop talking about it at any time. My own feeling is if she had kind of put it behind her and never talked about it again, would have probably been the best thing. We've all done stupid things in our lives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's my feeling. Yeah. It's more problematic the way Trump is using it. It's demeaning to Native people in the end. Sure, to her, but, it, you know, to his people, the people, his supporters, sort of a rallying cry against Native people. What kind of activism in the Native community has arisen? I mean, not just the pipeline, but elsewhere. What is the Native community doing, and how can those of us who are not part of the Native community help, assist, stay out of the way? Well, there's always donation buttons on all these different sites, and particularly in Oakland, uh, the American Indian Child Resource Center and the Intertribal Friendship House could always use help in programming, and Native organizations always can use more money. As far as the activism that's arisen from this political moment, I don't have a clear picture of... Uh, I'm not an activist myself. Um, I was a little more involved when I worked for the Native American Health Center. and uh, It was a nonprofit. I was in behavioral health, but I was working as a media coordinator. And I don't really have my finger on the pulse right now as far as what's happening. There's a lot of amazing artists and activists out there. When you're looking at our culture, this is a broader question, and having grown up in the culture and watching TV and film... What can you point to to say, okay, you know, this is a pretty good example of where white people or black people or non-Native American people can look and see what Native American life is really like? Can you give some examples? We come from many walks of life. There's over 576 federally recognized tribe, not to mention the ones that aren't federally recognized, who have different worldviews and different languages and different relationships to contemporary life. For so long, we've been sort of made to be one thing or not at all. So I, w I don't think that there are a great deal of examples of what it's like. In Canada, there's a much more progressive view. There's even like a First Nations TV channel with, that has a lot of examples of that. We don't have a lot in popular culture that's that I think is a great example. Um, as far as the, that a lot of people access and a lot of people would have seen, there's plenty of independent movies and documentaries that nobody's heard about, and there's a lot of books to read. But as far as popular culture, um, there's not that much. So when you were growing up, it was you were kind of blind. Yeah, or you, you, you see the wrong thing or you don't see it at all, and that's not a great... You know, a lot of people grow up with role models, models or heroes, and to not have that... Or to only see a caricature of yourself is super damaging. Dressing up in, in native costume, every character in There There does it, and his position on it is kind of ambiguous. On the one hand, hey, look, this is our past, and on the other hand, what the hell am I dressing up for? Is this Halloween? Mm -hmm. well, is that pretty much how you felt? Not really. I, I was never a power dancer. I just thought of the idea for the character. That piece is not autobiographical. My dad sort of made the decision not to necessarily push anything on us, kind of had to have us figure it out ourselves. So that part influenced me because we were never told that we had to do anything in particular in order to feel that, that we were Indian. We didn't grow up in the Oakland Native community either, even though it's been there for a long time. I came to it when I started working in it when, in my early 20s. Tommy Orange, now there, there is out. Uh, you're working on something else, I would assume. 
I have two different novels that I've been working on, and one of them's a family autobiographical novel, and the other one I've stopped talking about. I don't want to lose the energy or, you know, sometimes talking about things when you don't have enough actual stuff written kind of ruins it. Right now I'm focusing on short stories. How many have you written? Short stories? Oh, there's countless, but how many good ones or published ones? Uh, just recently got a short story published in Zoetrope of San Francisco. Just found out that I've got a story accepted at uh, Freeman's. It's a literary magazine that John Freeman puts together. And eventually, hopefully, they'll be collected. Yes. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>